Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Larry. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello, Tim. Hiya. Uh, I am drinking a big old tankard of beer, like a lad. Um, lad I'm not going to even uh, make a tenuous link to what I'm thinking about. I'm just going to talk <laughs> about being a lad. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I'm thinking about sorghum. Oh, we got there. Um yeah. <laughs> Um, now in fairness we only decided we were going to do this as a theme at the last minute like we had we gave Mm -hmm. ourselves less than 48 hours really to uh, put this one together so we can totally be excused for not being able to uh, drink something according to the theme Um, except that I am <laughs> I really didn't think I was going to be able to get my hands on any, but actually it turned out that Sainsbury's did stock um, a brand called Greens, who do use sorghum in their dry hopped lager, which um, I am consuming, along with buckwheat, millet, hops, brown rice and yeast. And that's because even though you might not be familiar with sorghum in this country particularly, you may have consumed it without realising because it's quite present in gluten-free beers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But yeah, I'm quite pleased with myself that I did actually manage to get hold of some. It wasn't, um, it wasn't until I started researching for this podcast that I realised that I have very recently eaten some crisps that are made with sorghum flour. Ah, um, Yes. I can't remember where I had them from. They either came as part of the Beer 52. Shout out Beer 52. Sponsor us if you want. Mm. Um, <laughs> they either came from the Beer 52 pack um, with the free snacks. Mm-hmm. Or I just randomly saw them in the kind of vegan slash free yeah. section in the supermarket. Um, they are making their way into our sphere. So mm-hmm. let me tell you a little bit more about it then. Uh, a little bit more about sorghum. Actually, just quickly first, gluten-free beer. There are two main ways to manufacture gluten-free beer um, here in the UK. The first is to use a malt from naturally gluten-free cereals or sude cereals, such as sorghum, which is where this comes in, or millet or buck, uh, buckwheat, rice, quinoa or maize. And beers made in that way do have a slightly different aroma and flavour to you know what you might think of as regular beer with um, barley and wheat. The second method is that you can produce a beer which tastes more like the beer you'd be used to using a gluten containing malt like rye and barley and wheat and then you introduce it to a process to reduce the gluten content so that it is compliant with the law in this country. Now the law doesn't mean it has to be 100% gluten free, it just needs to contain 20 parts per million or less of gluten. 
And one way of doing that is to use an enzyme at the start of the fermentation process that then breaks down the gluten protein. So if you are fully celiac, as in you can't have any gluten at all, it might be better for you to seek out the beers which are naturally gluten-free grains, like sorghum, for example, rather than the ones that extract gluten. But they do have slightly different tastes. Um, another benefit to sorghum is it is also very high in antioxidants. Um, it's been proposed actually in a few papers as a reason why there are fewer incidents of specific cancers in geographies where it's become a staple food. So as a, I mean, obviously anything you turn into alcohol is not going to be as good for you but <laughs> as a grain, sorghum is very good. There are about 25 species of sorghum. It's not just one thing. Um, 17 of which are native to Australia. But the most widely cultivated one does seem to be sorghum bicolor, which is native to Africa. But it's still quite an important crop worldwide. So it's used for food, um, either as grain or in sorghum syrup or sorghum molasses. It's used as animal fodder, it's used as biofuel and, of course, alcoholic beverages. Woo! <laughs> That's all we care about. Yep, that's what we can <laughs> talk about. Uh, so most of the varieties are very resistant to droughts um, and heat they are nitrogen efficient so they're really important crops for arid um, regions and that becomes you know kind of the staple for the, the more rural and poorer people um, in fact sorghum's cultivation has been linked by archaeological research back to ancient sudan which is about six or seven thousand years ago um, so in much the way that we were exploring kind of the grains being made into beer in Mesopotamia, this is like the sort of African parallel version of that. Um, as you said, it can be eaten um, as snacks. It's eaten like popcorn in India, actually. They just pop the grains and eat it like that. Um, China used the flour to make noodles and bread. Um, and its consumption in China is absolutely huge. So they China purchased about a billion dollars worth of sorghum just from America. Um, every year until April 2018 uh, and then they went into their trade wars between the two countries they're not getting it from there anymore <laughs> mm -hmm. but they were um, so I mentioned Africa I mentioned China that's setting up for the two drinks that I am going to talk to you about one is a sorghum drink that's actually a spirit popular in China and the other one is a beer from southern Africa so that's what I'm going to tell you about Okay. Did you want to pick up on any of that business before I get onto them? Uh, I always want to talk about beer, so can I? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure, How is your yeah. beer, by the way? How is your gluten-free it's, it's very nice. It's very nice. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's fruity, it's pleasant, etc. I won't, I won't go on any more about that. It's nice. <laughs> well, I'm glad you picked uh, a Greens because it's the first uh, beer brand that I wanted to talk about. Sod's mm. law. Um, so yeah, I I basically just uh looked into what sorghum beers are out there, which one's most popular, etc. etc. And the most prevalent one I found here in the UK was Greens. Um so I looked into the history of that. So it was back in nineteen eighty eight. A chap called Derek Green um had the problem of needing to avoid gluten. He had a gluten intolerance. Uh, so obviously the barley and wheat in beers back then were causing him problems. He couldn't find any gluten-free beer. So being a natural entrepreneur, he travelled around Europe trying to just find a way of creating his own 
gluten-free beer and he was getting very frustrated because breweries and generally pubs were just kind of laughing him out the door saying that it's too complicated can't be bothered not enough demand for it um so he kept going kept going it wasn't until 2003 he met um a belgian professor um a professor of brewing and by coincidence this professor's daughter also needed to avoid gluten um so there was a mutual passion there for beer and gluten-free goods uh, so after lots of trials, in May 2004, Greens launched the first, the UK's first ever naturally gluten-free beer. Uh, so quickly after that, they started winning lots of awards. As you mentioned, it's not just sorghum they use, they use lots of other alternative grains, but uh, they have a nice variety of 100% gluten-free beers, including an ale, a hopped lager, which I think is the one that you've got, mm-hmm. the dry hopped lager. Yep. They do an India pale ale, a triple, a dubel, all of which are gluten-free. Um, they're also free from lots of other allergens and are vegetarian and vegan. So good on the guys at Greens. The kind of US counterpart to that, the most popular slash famous one I could find was Bard's Tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a similar story and this was a theme throughout my research as well all of these award-winning gluten-free beers are made by people who are celiac or gluten intolerant that's all of the backstory on all of the websites when you click on our story our company it's always hi i'm a celiac and i love beer <laughs> so yeah. um the bard's tale is made by a celiac called craig um but they have lots of heavy um, trademarking and stuff like Americans do on their website. They've actually trademarked their beer as being truly gluten-free. Uh, they also slap the slogan all over the website on their bottles. It's the original sorghum malt beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Bard's Tale is very popular. Uh, I also then just wanted to look into a few interesting sounding beers made with sorghum. Um and I've got three. One is the Brass Castle Hoptical Illusion. Purely picked that because I like the name. Um, that is brewed up in Yorkshire. It's an IPA with tropical hop flavours. But the Hoptical Illusion, obviously, is that it has a magic secret. It contains no barley or wheat. It's 100% sorghum. Uh, another one that sounds fun was the Jolly Pumpkin Golden Manatee Belly Pargo. <laughs> that was a lot of random lot, words put together. A lot of words. My, my mind was trying to come up with a picture and it just gave up halfway through. <laughs> the Jolly Pumpkin Golden Manatee Belly Pumpkin. It feels like they just went onto the one of those like random name generators. Yeah. Picked a few and then went, yeah, that's the mm. name of our beer. So this is um, brewed in Michigan. It's a Belgian style IPA. Sounds delicious, to be fair. It's brewed with chestnuts, tapioca, sorghum, agave nectar, and fresh hops. It yeah. promises a spicy mouthful of fun. Mm. Sign me up. Uh, last one I picked purely on the name. It sounds... Well, it didn't sound too bad, but the reviews were terrible. I just liked that it was called the Epic Glutinator. Um, that is a beer from Salt Lake City. They've kind of gone well into the realms of innovation with that one they've used sweet potatoes and molasses and all kinds of stuff in it and Mm -hmm. from what i could read on 
various review websites, it was not nice. People were like, it tastes like mm. dirt. It tastes oh, no. all sorts of bad. So if you do see the epic glutinator anywhere, don't be fooled by the name. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it's a little, That's a little line of, of beers. Of praising and damning ads um, across the board there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well, generally pretty pretty much praise there. Other mm-hmm. than the epic glutinator, all were good. And I think, especially with food, gluten-free can often get a bad rep. But sure. I think the fact that there are lots of these passionate celiac pissheads out there, <laughs> we're getting some good <laughs> booze out of it. Good. Well... I suppose what I want to say about that is the the people who are sort of making bold on their claims of inventing and discovering and trademarking truly truly gluten free and all that sort of stuff might mm-hmm. want to be a bit more mindful about um, uh, you know doffing their cap to Africa and their ancient tradition of brewing sorghum. So I'm mm. going to tell you about this traditional brew, which um, is mostly popular in in South Africa now, which is called um ombati. Uh, which is from the Chosa and Zulu languages. Now, before you go into this, I'm yeah. sure that, <laughs> and we all know how good my memory is, I have either come across this in my research, I may have bludgeoned the name, but I may have mentioned this previously, or attempted to mention this previously. Right. Is it, is it possible I... that you said this but didn't try the clicks? Oh, absolutely. I would have said it phonetically in Welsh, probably. So, um, pretty much. I think I can't remember which podcast. When I saw that you were going to talk about it, I did Mm -hmm. quickly try and look through our previous uh, podcast titles to try and remember. It may have been that I mentioned it in the wedding episode. Because sometimes it's a celebratory drink. I think maybe. Yeah. It is celebratory, traditional, just mm-hmm. drunk for all sorts of but, things. Yeah, right definitely have touched upon this, but I'm glad that you've said it. <laughs> well, I'm going to go into it in a bit more detail. And hey, I don't, I don't pr- uh, profess to be particularly pr- proficient at this language, but I understand. I think that is on on body. Yeah, I That's definitely didn't for. say that. <laughs> From now on, it shall be called sorghum beer. So. <laughs> um, so first of all, it's um, it's popular because it's very rich in vitamin B, which is a vitamin they, they need muchly of. And it's got quite a low alcohol content, usually um, around 3% or less. And the other thing that's quite distinctive about it is it's got a, a more sour aroma than you might think of, you know, with uh, lagers and uh, ales and, and so forth. It's a bit more like the sours we would have now, really, I suppose. Kind of heavy, distinctly sour aroma. So, although in gluten-free beers, um, we see, like, a lot of the gluten-free ones are going into when I'm having lager, IPA, etc. Actually, I think what the British breweries might want to look at is using it more in the sours, because I think the flavour profile is probably a more natural fit. That's what I would do if I was working in these things. Um, so the recipes uh, for this beer are, well, they're not only kind of traditional nationally, but they're traditional through families that the recipes are passed down through generations. So you'll have local variations as well. Um, it's traditionally prepared over a fire outside of the house 
and then they just leave it to cool um, in the ambient temperatures outside the house. It's left overnight and it starts fermenting and bubbles appear. And that's when you start to detect that sour odour. So actually in the same way that we would make sours by leaving it open to wild yeasts, that's what they're doing here. Um, and then what they have is a small portion of the wort is then removed and put to one side. And the mash that's left over is cooked until it, it forms a bit of a crusty sediment. Mm. And then that's eaten as a porridge. So they don't waste anything there. Kind of that leftover mash gets eaten uh, by them. And when they're making the beer, they leave it to cool for a day. And after it's cooled, it's poured into a big vat, usually just a large plastic one. And then the wort that was set aside is added to the vat, and along with a handful of kind of more of the sorghum malt. And then it's stirred with a traditional stirring spoon called an <laughs> ipini. And then it's covered with a lid and a blanket to try and retain that heat. And then it's put in a warm place overnight to get the fermentation going. So there's a traditional method of testing to see if the brew is ready or not. And that's to light a match close to the vat. And if the match blows out quickly, then the brew is ready. But if it stays lit, then it's not ready. And that's because the fermenting mash produces large, large amounts of carbon dioxide. So yes. obviously the, the match uh, isn't able to combust. So when it's ready, the fermented mash is filtered through um, a strainer to remove the spent grains. And those spent grains, as I say, nothing gets wasted. They are then usually kind of fed to uh, chickens or livestock. And then the brewer of the beer traditionally will give thanks to the ancestors uh, while casting uh, the, the leftover grains. So the beer's been strained, it's poured into a large communal drum known as a go-go-go. Nice, and I like that. Then it's, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like, go, 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 chin it. Um, and then it's, <laughs> it's ready to be shared with friends and family. So um, the guests arrive at the brewer's home to taste the beer, join the celebrations. Um, people will traditionally bring a bottle of brandy with them as well as a symbol of gratitude, which seems like a really good trade to me. You have a communal kind of bucket of beer and someone brings you brandy. Mm. Um, yeah, but as you say, kind of is used for celebration, special moments, but I mean, let's not kid ourselves. They're drinking it all the time anyway as well. <laughs> uh, you can actually, there's a song about um, about this drink uh, by Yvonne Chaka Chaka. And you can hear it at the opening of Hotel Rwanda if you watch that film. It's a song all about the magical African beer. And I listened to it earlier, and it's good fun. <laughs> Recommend going have a listen. A tune, okay. Mm. It is just called Um or Bothy. So, good luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That was, if you remember, um, Illyri talking about that in the earlier episode, that was either a reminder or a bit more detail. We're not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, I didn't go into that much detail. Part of me feels like I researched it and planned to talk about it, but then realised I would probably get heckled for my pronunciation. And I'm, I'm just willing to accept that risk. <laughs> <laughs> like, fine. I'm, to be honest, it can't be any worse than my Portuguese. So <laughs> I feel like that's the one I always really mess up. <laughs> So, you know, as long as we as long as we offend all languages equally, I think that's the main thing. Yeah, we can do that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? Um, whiskey, actually, which I didn't yeah. expect to come up in uh, our chat today. Mm -hmm. But um, 
as we've already discovered, sorghum is extremely versatile and the sorghum syrup is often used in the production of fermented beverages um, and distilled, etc, etc. So, yeah, I looked into different spirits that have been made out of it, but then kind of commercialised and I found that sorghum whiskey is quite popular. Um, the most famous one is um, made in America. It is the James F.C. Hyde Original Sorgo Whiskey. Sorgo spelled S-O-R-G-H-O. Uh, now that's dubbed as the, they've self-proclaimed this, but it is dubbed as the most unique and innovative whiskey since the Civil War. And okay. it's made with 100% American-grown sorghum. Um, so why James F.C. Hyde, you ask? Um, James why F. James F.C. Hyde? Why? Well, he was um, a 19th century Massachusetts businessman with a keen interest in botany and agriculture. Uh, in 1857, he published some definitive work on how to grow, harvest, and distill sorghum. Uh, back then, sorghum was actually known as sorgo, hence the name sorgo whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was the chap that inspired a distiller to make this sorgo whiskey. Uh, so it was um, a chap called, a master distiller uh, called Brant Brau. Uh, he built on the legacy of James F.C. Hyde and obviously utilised the 21st century innovations of copper pot distilling, distillation. And he produced this original Sorgo whiskey, which is the most popular of its kind in the US. There are a few others, but this is obviously like the front runner. Um, I found a few others. Um, one was called Quarter Acre Sorghum Whiskey. That's distilled by a distillery called High Wire in South Carolina. Again, that's 100% sorghum used. And they claim that the recipe for their sorghum whiskey is inspired by an old sorghum cake recipe. So it's got quite a sweet um, flavour to it. And a sorghum syrup does naturally have quite a, a caramel kind of toffee flavour to it. It's very sweet. Um, so the whiskey isn't as strong as your other whiskies on the shelf. So I know that the proof is different over in the US. I can't remember off the top of my head how different it is, but they are saying that it's 80% proof, which is quite low for the US. So they're normally well into the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, so because it's an 80% proof whiskey and it's inspired by sorghum cake, they suggest that it's perfect for after dinner sipping with your dessert or in place of dessert so yeah sorghum whiskey sounds delish i'm not a huge whiskey fan but after reading about those i think i want to give it a try it sounds You've got more a bit... of a more of a sweet tooth so it might yeah kind of appeal more to you although yeah. um your own objections to having um a dessert drink instead of dessert were running through my head as you suggested that i'm like they're not your words whenever i say that you're like no <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Funny enough, when I was when I was doing this research and I read, oh that I thought, oh that's a nice idea, replacing dessert with your whiskey, and then I instantly thought, no, I I want both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not replacing anything for anything. Give it to me all. Um, 
So yes, the sorghum syrup, as well as whiskey, it has inspired lots and lots of uh, bartenders to come up with some cocktails. So I did find a couple of cocktails. Um, Hit me. One of which was called Twisted Sorghum Cider. Uh, so these are all very kind of geared towards, as the Americans say, fall, autumn slash winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Twisted Sorghum Cider is a fireball whiskey with apple juice and bitters. And you just garnish it with apple and cinnamon. Apple and cinnamon, sorry. You add the sorghum cider before you add all of those ingredients. So it's essentially whiskey and apple juice with the sorghum sweetness mm-hmm. added to mm-hmm. it. Uh, second one is called Fallen Apple. So for this one, you need a very tart apple. Uh, some bourbon, some sorghum syrup, some lemon juice, and some sugar. Muddle those together, and then on top of that, you pour some dry cider. That's going to warm you up and awaken your senses. Sure. Um, now, the other drinks, there's two others that I found. They're not alcoholic, but it they were both interesting. So. Well, I'll be the judge of that. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, the first one is called Hochata oh yes Um, so I looked into the origins of that name before I went into the drink so that Hochata is actually a Mexican name given to a various well just a collection really it's like a collective term given to a drink that's made of plant milk Um, they have other variations in Africa, Spain, Portugal, different words for it, but it's just a collective term for plant, plant-based milk drinks. Um, this um, horchata is actually starting to become a lot more commercialised as well, in the US especially. Uh, you're starting to notice it as a, a flavour in mm-hmm. ice cream and cookies and other desserts, and McDonald's have actually started using... Um, Hoshata as a flavour for their coffees as well. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely getting known. So the Hoshata drink that I found, including um, sorghum, is um, almond milk as the base. Um, But you would take the sorghum, so this isn't the syrup, this is the actual grain. So you take the grain and you'll toast that in the oven. Alongside toasting that, you'll also toast some sesame seeds. Once they're nice and golden brown, you'll put them in a blender, blend them up, and then add to that powdery mix some brown sugar, some vanilla, some cinnamon. Uh, Put that all together, mix it up well, and leave it sit for 30 minutes. And then you'll strain that through a cheesecloth because you don't want any grittiness to the Mm -hmm. drink. And just strain that over ice for a nice, spicy, sorghumy, plant milky, delicious drink. Very nice. I will. I will approve of that one. Yes, okay. indeed. I, I I do actually know that. I think I had one when I was um, over in California. Uh, you could easily make that alcoholic, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what What can't you? Exactly. So, whack some dark rum in that for me, please, and I'll take two. <laughs> Uh, the other one is actually a non-alcoholic slash health drink. Um, again, it's a bit generic, and it's just smoothies. <laughs> a lot of people are starting to use um, sorghum grain. Again, 
whizzed in a blender as a powder, people are scooping that into their smoothies in the morning, especially health nuts slash vegans, because it's a really good source of energy, fibre and protein. And it's a nice thickener mm-hmm. for your smoothie as well. So if you want some extra fibre or protein in your diet, whack some sorghum grains or blend it up into it. You're welcome. We'll see. We'll do. Top tip. Thank you very much. <laughs> and if you want to put some extra rum in there, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, nobody's judging you if you need some rum in your breakfast smoothie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right, shall I do some distilling? Again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be any worse than my uh, attempts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like, um, uh, no, you already did a bit, didn't you, with whiskey, but this is... The most popular version of mm-hmm. distilled sorghum. Um, I was going to say I believe, but I, I know for a fact. I've got data. So this is baiju, which is Chinese principally. There's no actual official group that regulates baiju, um, you know, in a way that we see whiskies and vodkas and tequilas or whatever being regulated. So although I'll be talking about it as a spirit distilled from sorghum, uh, grain. It can easily be found uh, made with other grains, but it is mostly sorghum. So baiju just means clear liquor, to give you an idea of kind of like how it's associated with something like vodka. Um, but sorghum is the most common, and if you want the high quality um, examples in China, they'd be made from local grains like the red variety of sorghum that they get there in Sichuan province. But as I mentioned earlier, they do also import a lot, and that's for the less expensive versions. So, quick history um, of sorghum being uh, distilled into baiju according to the progression of Chinese dynasties. Here we go. <laughs> so there was a there was a sort of very early version of the alcohol making in China way back in the Neolithic age. Um, there have been archaeological discoveries, not only of the containers for the alcohol, um, but then as we get a little bit on into sort of 200 BCE to 220 um, CE, and that's the Han Dynasty, we find that there's also art depictions of, um, of the distillery process as well. Then we go on to the Tang Dynasty, which is the 7th to the 10th century, um, and that's where we sort of get more specific references to baiju as opposed to just distilled alcohol. Um, and that's because it starts to be described by poets. So we've gone from archaeological evidence to art to poetry. And now we go into the Song Dynasty, which is 10th to the 13th centuries. And the Song Dynasty was when they really had kind of like the flourishing of cities, commerce, urbanization. Um, and so with that, of course, comes bars. So it's popularizing drinking of baiju in the bars in the cities. Uh, the next dynasty is the Yuan dynasty in the 13th to the 14th century. And that's when they've opened up a little bit more and they're doing more regular trade with the Middle East. So they bring in the Middle East and distillery technology to China and that improves the techniques. So you get a higher uh, degree distilled alcohol to be possible than what they had been doing before. And then that really matures through the Ming Dynasty in the 14th to the 17th centuries. Um, And that's the period of time when they're refining it to the point where you would recognise it as modern baiju. 
So in its modern form, it's pretty much come from the Ming Dynasty. Now, um, it sold nearly 11 billion litres in 2018, which makes it the most consumed alcohol in the world. This was almost entirely sold in China yeah, as well. Geez. But when you add all that up, that's more than whiskey, vodka, gin, rum and tequila combined. Whoa. Isn't that a crazy amount for a, a drink which we don't know that much about in this country? Why is that <laughs> not like a generic pub quiz question? I don't know. Yeah, it, well, it probably is. Well, now you know. Hey, mm. and you've just reminded me. I mean, we're only a few months away from pub quiz too, so steal that one away <laughs> in your mind. <laughs> um, so one of the important things when you're distilling baiju is the, and I'm going to try and say this one correctly, chu, which is Q-U. Not pronounced chu, but chu. Uh, so all baiju is made with chu, which is a composite of yeast and mould cultivated with grains and then formed into cakes or balls. So um, that's used not only in baiju. Don't laugh at balls, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Clutching at straws here. Um, but they use it to produce rice wine as well and soy sauce and vinegar and bean paste. So I mentioned this in the sake episode uh, when we were in Japan, but this is a similar process in China. So... Chur contains microbes that cause saccharification and fermentation. So this is what I talked about in, this, in the um, sake episode. So in, in other grain spirits, you get the conversion of carbohydrates into fermentable sugar first, and that's separate from the fermentation um, through the malting or cooking the mash. And then once the sugars have been converted, then they add yeast. So with baiju, like with sake, chu allows both of the processes to happen at the same time. Uh, they do this as well in mud-lined pits, traditionally. So previously distilled grain is mixed with, mixed with fresh steamed grain, and then it's inoculated with the chu and fermented for two to three months. Um, there are other styles that use either clay jars or stone-lined pits as well, but this is the traditional one. And then... When it's ready to be distilled, the grain from the pit is loaded into the pot still in uh, batches of one ton at a time. And they actually, if you can imagine it, they look very much like the steamers that you'd get in a Chinese kitchen. So that mash is starting at around 3.2% um, alcohol. So like the same strength as the beer really that you get in Africa. Um, but the resulting liquor that they produce from that comes in at 60 to 67% ABV. So that's quite uncommon as a level for a spirit undergoing just a single distillation in a traditional pot still. And that's because the cooler layer of grain and bran that's added onto the top of the mash before uh, distillation causes the water to recondense and sink back into the mash, which causes the same effect that you would get if you put it in a column still, for example, mm -hmm. that's what it's doing, it's condensing water so it comes back around. So after a batch is distilled, the um, grain that's been spent is shoveled onto the distillery floor to cool before it's reinvigorated with yet more chur and then returned to the same pit that it comes from. So individual layers are separated by um, husks so you can see kind of where the layers are. And 
their value differently. So the oldest layers at the bottom are the most prized, while the top is often discarded. And that's what they're kind of taking into consideration as they then go on to blend. So the longer a fermentation pit is used, the greater the complexity of the spirit you're going to get out of it. And that's really the difference between the cheaper baiju, which consists of younger layers, um, or will be cut with other spirits, versus something um, that has an aged pit, which the pit could be a century old. Um, if it's that old, and the layers have been sort of used indefinitely, then it's called either strong or light aroma baiju. So depending on the nose, it's said to be tropical fruits and earthiness for the strong aroma, and then more floral for the light aroma. If the layers have only been used up to eight times, then it's called sauce aroma, sauce aroma by you. And the flavors of that are kind of more roasted and mushroom in flavor. And then there's a fourth type, there's four types in all, but the fourth type is rice aroma, which is milder, um, but not sorghum, obviously, so I'll move on. Uh, the, the the taste of baiju, or the feel of it, is said to be kind of somewhere between sake, as you would imagine, but also tequila and gin in its flavour profiles because of the botanicals that um, it kind of comes out with as well. Mm-hmm. It's served at room temperature and it's served neat. So there's a traditional ceremony that um, goes with it, as we have come to find in many of these. Um, so you, first of all, have to... Um, show respect to the host you have to greet the host show respect and then you spill a little amount of the baiju in from the cup onto the ground to show gratitude to nature so gratitude to host gratitude to nature then you take a sip and you taste the baiju and you tell the host your opinion of it (laughs) and then you finish the baiju in the small glass in one go um, after you said cheers and uh, clinked glasses in modern times with that Mostly the ceremony isn't done now. That's just mm-hmm. kind of like a very traditional version of it. Um, but they still do always make sure that they say cheers and then they chin it in one. So you have like little thimblefuls um, when you're when you're poured. But you can only sort of, you can only drink it when someone's making a toast. So would they drink that like for the entire night or is it more of a, I don't know. Mm. I can't imagine dr- spending so, a whole night drinking like that. There's, well, there's two versions of this. So one is this kind of ceremonial version of it, I guess, if you're doing it to for a specific occasion. Modern times, people will just say cheers and I guess do it as much as they want. But there is there is another tradition of it, which is a, a modern one, but it's about the Chinese business culture. So it has a reputation for being very intense, <laughs> the way the way the Chinese do business and they have this kind of idea that you show your true color when you're intoxicated so it's not sort of (laughs) well you know for some people it is um so what they how they bring that into business is when they're negotiating like a new partnership they will have a tradition of serving a very high degree baiju on the dinner table so you know in the high 60s and they do that as a kind of test of each other's trustworthiness and they also kind of have a lot of beliefs in in China especially rural China that consuming alcohol excessively is a test of manliness and that you shouldn't reject a serving offered by someone who is higher up than you so 
some people, especially kind of if they're coming new to Chinese um, business, are persuaded to overdrink a lot on those occasions. I and think I do really well in a for... Chinese business sesh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a problem, but it's, <laughs> but it, it's one of the reasons actually why young people in China now don't really regard Baiju very well. It's not so much the flavor; it's those kind of like business traditions of you have to drink a lot to prove yourself, and a lot mm-hmm. of the attitudes among the the young have really changed. Uh, towards that so they look at it as something that's sort of going out of favor now has a negative association of excessive drinking culture um with baiju so there you go so the answer to the question do you have to do it all night i think it depends on uh, your business setting your age <laughs> it's uh, your willpower etc etc but it's it's you know it's an enormously consumed beverage in china not so much outside because i think a lot of western palates the flavor profile is a bit odd but even within china there's a shifting attitude towards how it's being consumed well i'm an old hag with no willpower so bring it (laughs) (laughs) you can you can put that one on the spreadsheet just for you i think uh i i I don't want to go to china though they can come here (laughs) Right. Next time you you say basically you say next time you go for a Chinese you're gonna you're gonna do it. Maybe we'll see. See how it goes. With, with your um, rice and chips. <laughs> half and half and some baijiu. Oh. Anything else while we're here in the in the sorghum region? I don't think so. I'm sorghum out. <laughs> it's been a whirlwind across the globe mm. uh, for that one. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to see a dentist about this sorghum. Cheers, everybody. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Spent, spent ages on that one. That took a long time. I'm not I'm not willing to admit how long it took me to get that. <laughs> I was like, have we talked about it being really sweet and bad for our teeth? <laughs> nope. Just puns. <laughs> nice puns, hon. Huh?